So um, today we're going to be starting a new four-week series on the book of Ruth, all right? Um, Ruth is an awesome book. Um, Not only is it concise and short, there's four chapters, this book is also filled with amazing themes. Um, It's just a great literary piece as well with a lot of, you know, wordplay, you know, there's irony. Um, But most of all, like, this, this book is so amazing because we see... Um, an interesting perspective of how redemption looks like, right? So one of the biggest themes in Ruth that we'll see as we go into this book is the theme of redemption. And the purpose of this book is pretty much this. The author of this book wants to show us how God used a handful of faithful people to eventually make way for a king, King David, who would ultimately make way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, right? So in other words, the story of Ruth is kind of like a origin story of King David. Uh, we get to see a picture of his family line. And outside of the, the four Gospels, right, the, the story of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, outside of the Gospels, in my opinion, this is probably the greatest story of redemption, right? Um, and this is going to be so encouraging for us. Um, this has been already immensely encouraging for me. Um, as I was just studying this book. And, you know, I love this book so much because it really shows that God can do something out of nothing, right? Um, God can bring uh, really, like, a level of beautiness out of something that's super ugly. Um, God can still show us his presence when things are dark. Um, so, yeah, with that being said, I hope we're blessed with that. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to the book of Ruth. We're going to be looking at chapter 1. And I'll read for us. This is the reading of God's word, and it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Verse 4, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion, right, the sons of Elimelech and Naomi, died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is pretty much kind of like the introduction setting of the book that we're going to be going over for the next four weeks. So the author is pretty much telling us a story about a family from Bethlehem, right? Um, This family from Bethlehem, they're leaving to a foreign land called Moab because there's a famine, right? And then these are the characters. There's Elimelech, there's Naomi, who are the parents, and then they have two sons, Malon, Kilion, right? But for some reason, the father, Elimelech, he, he dies and after that, the sons, after some time, they take two, two wives from the land of Moab. Eventually, the sons died as well, leaving the three wives behind, right? Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. So the author is pretty much setting the scene with three widows. Now, in order for us to fully understand the weight of what's going on, um, we have to put our context glasses on. And in order for us to kind of unpack these amazing themes of redemption, um, we can't really see much without knowing um, 
really the background and the context. So, um, you know, we're going to be doing some work in Scripture today. And once we kind of understand the context and the culture in this particular time, we'll be able to um, see more clearly um, how God is speaking to us through his word. So the first thing that we see in context is this. Naomi lived during the time of the judges, right? So immediately, right, in verse 1, um, the author is giving us the setting, right? Naomi and her family, they live in a time when the judges ruled. Now, this is important because it's not just a demarcation of time, right? It's not like uh, other Bible stories where it says, oh, 200 years before the reign of Saul. Um, not only is the author trying to give us what time setting we're in, but the author also wants to show us the spiritual climate of that era. So I don't know if you've read the book of Judges, but it is easily the darkest book of the Bible. Like, Judges is, like, extremely grotesque. It's wicked, okay? And um, this is really probably the darkest time for Israel and where everyone, man, woman, and child, did what was right in their own eyes. There's no regard for God, no regard for the law, no one had a moral compass. Everyone did and lived however the heck they wanted, right? It's so dark. I, easily, it's the darkest book out of all the 66 books that we have that it makes Game of Thrones look like a PBS show. Like, that's how dark it is, right? There's one scene in the book of Judges where there's this concubine, okay? Uh, this concubine was being unfaithful to a Levite. Now, if you don't know what a Levite is, a Levite is part of the tribe, one of the tribes of Israel. And to be a Levite means you're pretty much, um, you're the family line of priests appointed by God, right? So you're kind of like the holiest man in the land. You're kind of like a pastor figure, I guess, okay? So that's what a Levite is. So a Levite had a concubine, and this concubine was being unfaithful. So she runs away to her dad's house, um, but the Levite, he pursues her in a loving way to bring her back, Okay, so he offers, you know, his father-in-law gifts. Um, they seem to reconcile, and he takes the concubine back, and they head back home. On their way back home, um, there's a shortcut to go through a foreign land. But being a holy Israelite, right, this Levite didn't want to step into unclean foreign land. So he went through, you know, an Israel, Israelite land, Gibeah, right, a land that belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, now, in Gibeah, they stayed at some person's house, and all of a sudden, this violent crowd emerges, and, you know, this violent crowd of men come up to the house, and they pretty much want to rape the Levite, right? It's very similar to the story in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The host of the house, right, who's hosting the Levite and the concubine, begs the crowd to stop. Please, don't do such an evil thing, right? Instead, you can have my virgin daughter... And you could take this concubine. And literally, if you look at the text, this is in ESV. I'm pulling this straight from scripture. Um, this is what the host says to the violent crowd. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, the Levite, do not do this outrageous thing. The irony is this. Israel were supposed to be this holy chosen people of God, but they looked as sinful and as wretched as their like, Canaan neighbors. So the crowd of men, they did not cooperate. So the host, this is what he does. He just throws out the concubine, and the Bible tells us that she was gang-raped all night by this violent crowd. The next morning, the Levite finds her at the doorsteps of the house, 
And he pretty much says this, hey, get up. It's time to go. We got to go back home. And the thing is, she was unresponsive. You know, was she dead? We don't know. So he puts her on the donkey. They go home. And right when they arrive home, they go to the place of worship, right, where animals are cut and sacrificed. So Levites at the time, they're responsible for animal sacrifices and worship, right? So the Levite would have tools to cut animals and sacrifice them. But this is what he does. He gets the knife. He cuts the concubine limb by limb into 12 pieces and sends them to the 12 different tribes of Israel, which starts a crazy civil war amongst all 12 tribes. And this war pretty much almost um, ends up wiping out the entire tribe of Benjamin. Now, did she die after, you know, she was assaulted? Or did she die on the chopping block? No one knows. But the purpose of this is to show us how wicked and how sinful and how depraved Israel was at that time. This is how dark the setting is for Naomi, right? Israel was extremely wicked during the time of Ruth. They were so bad that they had judges ruling over them, right? Not a king, not a prophet, not a priest, but a judge, Right? And these judges are not like courtroom judges, right? Um, but these judges were people who administered justice through military might. They were like military leaders, right? Like Samson, right? A great warrior. But here's the thing. These judges were terrible and wicked as well. So Naomi lived. Naomi was married. And Naomi was raising her family in the darkest time of Israel, right? So families, it's like this. It's like raising your family in the red light district where crime and drug use is so rampant. Right, this is the context of the judges. But not only did Naomi and her family live in this wicked spiritual climate, but they also lived in famine, right, which is the next word we see highlighted. Famine is usually brought upon as judgment, right, um, when we look at the Bible. And, you know, the place where Elimelech and Naomi lived, it's called Bethlehem, right? We all know Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And the irony is this, the house of bread has no bread, right? Because there's a famine. And here's the thing, church, um, we as Americans, we don't understand famine, right? Uh, Let's be honest, Um, at worst, we get hangry or we get upset, right? At poor service or um, poor quality of food at restaurants, right? We get upset at overpaying. Our biggest inconvenience when it comes to food is not that we don't have food, but rather it's that we have to wait for food. Most of us as Americans, we do not know the experience of starving because there's no food to eat, right? Food shortage is such a foreign idea for us because food is so accessible, isn't it? I mean, we can just go to a a Ralph's or a Trader Joe's, and there will always be food there. We can pretty much get whatever we want, whenever we want, and we have so much food that literally supermarkets have to throw away the produce because it goes bad. So this is the criteria of a famine, according to the United Nations, okay? So to be in a famine, you have to fit these criteria. Number one, 20% of the households are in an area faced with extreme food shortages. That's number one. The second criterion is this. Acute malnutrition in children exceeds 30%. So this means over 30% of your children are malnourished because there's no food. And this is the, the last criteria. Death rates exceed two people per 10,000 people per day. Two people per 10,000 people per day. So for LA County, right, greater Los Angeles, um, to be considered in famine, 
2,000 people must die of starvation every single day. Not every week, not every month, every single day. That's what it looks like to be in a famine. And that is something that we really just don't understand. That's how hard it was for Naomi, right? She lived in a crappy um, spiritual climate. She lived where there was no food. But here's another barrier that she had, another difficulty. She was an alien, right? She was a foreigner. It's hard to be a foreigner, isn't it? Right? There's so many language barriers. There's so many cultural barriers. There are so many things that you're not accustomed to, right? Like the way you talk or the way others eat or the way people celebrate holidays. Um, I stumbled upon this article or this um, thread on Reddit, and there's a story of a Chinese family who moved to the United States on October 31st, right, Halloween. Um, after they were unpacking, right, they were settling in. That evening, many people came to their house dressed up in crazy costumes, ringing the doorbell, right, yelling, trick or treat, right? And the family had no idea why. So they freaked out, they turned off all the lights, and they spent the entire night huddled under a table, right? And this is just because they didn't know the culture of Halloween, right? They weren't accustomed to the way in how we celebrated Halloween or partook in, you know, these holidays, right? What a way to spend their first night in America. You see, but not only is it hard being a foreigner, but it's hard being a foreigner in a land that doesn't get along with your people, right? It's kind of like a a Japanese person in the 60s trying to live in South Korea, right? Can you imagine that? Right? Moabites and Israelites did not get along. Right? If you don't know the people of Moab, um, they're the descendants of Lot. Right? If you read Genesis, there's this guy named Lot, and God rescues Lot from the destruction of Sodom, and his wife turned into a pillar of salt. You remember that story? Um, his daughters then slept with him, and the firstborn was named Moab. And in Genesis, it says, Moab was the father of the Moabites. So that's their family descendant line. So you can see how disgraceful it was for an Israelite to live and to associate with the Moabites. And I'm not even talking about cultural barriers. I'm not even talking about language barrier. It's hard being an alien. It's hard being a foreigner. But not only that, perhaps the worst of all for Naomi, she was a widow. Being a widow was the worst in those days. Right, scholars would say that widows were the most vulnerable in the societies in the ancient Near East. Right? Naomi lived in a time of a heavily patriarchal society. Right? These societies easily, without doubt, prioritized men over women. Right? And women weren't even near being counted as equals. Right? Um, I grew up, and I, I, I come from a patriarchal society. Right? Um, Korean culture is highly patriarchal. Right. Um, when my dad was born, my dad was born during the Korean War. So literally, our my dad's side, they lived in North Korea. And right when the war started, everyone is, was escaping to the South. Right. So um, in order to escape, right, there was military aid, and my family, right, my grandmother, um, had to take like I think seven kids. Right. She had seven kids that time, um, and they had to like get in this boat to leave the border, pretty much. Right, the grandfather was already in South Korea by this time. But here's the thing. There was not enough room on the boat. So my grandmother literally decided this. I'm only going to take the males. I'm going to leave the daughters behind. Isn't that crazy? Right? 
And the reason why is because their patriarchal culture is informing this decision. Because why? It's the male of the family that prolongs the family name. But thankfully, um, someone in the family knew one of the guys in the military. So they just had everyone on. And the kids were just like crying and like hitting their parents. Like, why were you leaving me behind? Crazy. It's like a movie, right? And when I talk to my aunts about it now, like they always like break down and cry. This is the culture of patriarchy, right? This is what it's like to be a woman in a patriarchal culture. But widows especially had it a hundred times worse than a normal woman. You know, wives in those days, they depended on their husband for sustenance. So if your husband died, you're done. You're good as dead because there's either three options. Number one, you go into slavery because you can't support yourself. Number two, you go into prostitution, which was, you know, what happened normally for widows at that time. Or number three, you died. Widows couldn't work for themselves, right? They couldn't have the, they didn't have the same opportunities that male had to work independently. So the moment your husband dies, you know that your life is over. And lots of scholars, they compare Naomi to Job. Both went through immense suffering. Both have lost a lot. Um, Both didn't receive an explanation on why they were suffering. But people argue that Naomi had it worse just because she was a woman in that society. At least Job, he can just work again and regain his fortune. But for Naomi, she lost everything, and there's no opportunity to gain anything back. And this is not only for Naomi, but also for her daughter-in-laws, right, Orpah and Ruth. This book is so amazing. I love this book because this is a book that has two widows, right, two females who are marginalized as the main characters, Right? All the men, right, like Elimelech, who you would expect to be the main characters of the story, all die in the first five verses. Right? And we're left with three widows. Right? And the author isn't silent about the immense faith of these women. During the time of the scriptures, the most vulnerable, right, the, the disenfranchised, right, the people who are marginalized were the orphans, the poor, the widow, the alien. And if you look at the life of Naomi, she was three out of the four. This is the context that we're in. Now let's read on. This is verse 6. Then Naomi, she, ro- she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, this is Naomi speaking to Ruth. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman of the town said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So this is our passage, and here's what's going on. So Naomi, as she's spending her time in Moab, she hears by word of mouth, that the famine is over. So she decides to go back. Um, she decides to go back to her home at Bethlehem, and she wishes her daughter, daughter's well, right? Um, daughter-in-laws, right? Just, she's pretty much saying, look, don't follow me. Stay. It's better for you to stay in your hometown than to come, come with me. And really, like for Naomi, there's nothing left for her in Moab, so she decides to go home. The daughters also want to go with Naomi, which is pretty extraordinary, but she urges them, like, to leave, to, to stay, right, to, to not follow me. And she pretty much says, look, like, I have no husbands for you. You have no future with me. I got nothing to give you, right? You're a widow. It's better for you financially, practically, to survive here in your hometown rather than be an outsider like me. If you go with me, you'll either die or end up a slave. So it's better for you to stay home with your family and, if you can, remarry here. And again, may I remind us that the most vulnerable were the poor, the widows, the orphan, the aliens. And for Naomi, she lost everything. And she didn't want her daughters-in-law to have the same bleak future as her. So they, they cried together, they wept. But Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth was so persistent that she didn't want to leave. Naomi tells Ruth, like, stop. Go follow your, um, your sister, Orpah, and go back. But Ruth remained loyal to death. And what she says here is amazing. She says this, don't you dare tell me to leave you. Because where you will go, I'll go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will become my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I'm going to be buried. Not in Moab. And if I break this vow to you, May Yahweh kill me and do more. Right? That's what she says. So Naomi's like, all right. And they both leave to Bethlehem. And as Naomi and Ruth arrive at Bethlehem, Naomi expresses her bitterness, right? She literally changes her name to Mara, which means bitter, right? Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, right? And she hates her life. So, what can we learn from this passage? Um, it's a very dark time for Naomi. Um, she lost everything. Um, she lost her husband. She lost her own very own sons. 
I think we learn that redemption and care comes in the most unexpected ways. When it seems like everything is lost, we see here in the book of Ruth that God always has a way to care for us. God always has a way to redeem us and to provide for us, even in our greatest need. So how did God provide then? Right, as, as the story is so dark, we see kind of like the trajectory of the life in Naomi. How did God provide for her? Well, number one, God provided Naomi a new beginning. Here's what I mean by that. Um, God, for some reason, ended the famine. The famine is over, right? It says that Yahweh, the Lord, has provided food for his people in verse 6. And, you know, right when, immediately, like right when Naomi and Ruth arrive at Bethlehem, that's when the barley harvest has started, right? So this is interesting because God doesn't relieve her poverty, right? God doesn't provide another man or a husband or a job. God doesn't bring back, you know, her sons. But we see that even though Naomi still has a trouble in life, God provided daily bread. And her new life back in Bethlehem will lead to greater blessing. I think that's amazing. And I think just reading this face value, we're going to miss out on the fact that God has ended the famine and to see how big of a deal that is, right? Um, Of course, you know, all of her problems aren't solved, but God is caring for her by providing her daily sustenance. That's the first thing. The second thing, how did God provide? God provided Ruth. That's amazing. And what we see, the heroes of the story are not Israelites. They're non-Israelites, right? They're people who came from, like, a weird lineage from Lot, right? These are the heroes being celebrated. You know, Orpah, she was pretty extraordinary. She was also willing to leave, right? But we see even kind of, like, a more extraordinariness from uh, Ruth. You know, Ruth should have gone back to her family because that's where she would be most safe. But she must have loved Naomi so much to become like Naomi. Because if you see, there's like a role reversal here, right? As Naomi was a foreign poor widow going into Moab, Ruth decides to put her place in Naomi's shoes to be a poor foreign widow in Israel, in Judah. And sometimes I think what we have to understand is that God will provide people to show us compassion care, and loyalty. Ruth is going to play a huge part of redemption in the story, you know, as we study this book for the next four weeks. And, you know, in your own lives right now, you may not see the evidence of that, right? Um, The focus may be more on, oh, these are the problems going on in life. But surely, God has supplied you with people that care for you, that love you. The story of Naomi is so refreshing because it shows a real and genuine relationship with God. Although she believes in God, she still struggles with God. She laments what God has done. She complained, but even in her complaint, she's still interacting with God. Notice in this entire dialogue, she does not leave the faith. She does not reject Yahweh. But she does mention that Yahweh is the one that has brought this upon her. Right? She does not abandon God, and there's still even a small hint of faith. 
So church, how can we apply this text? Right, when we look at the, Na- at the life of Naomi, um, how can we apply this text? And this is our application for today. Interact with God in your misgivings with him. Interact with God in your misgivings with him. At the end of this passage, Naomi is at her lowest, but she says something interesting. She says that the Lord, Yahweh, was responsible for all of this. And this is interesting because Naomi, of course, didn't run away from God, right? She didn't leave her faith. She didn't renounce it. She didn't even curse or blame God. But what we see here is this. Naomi actually accepts the situation from God, but still expresses her honest feelings of pain and bitterness, Right? Naomi is pretty much saying this. In her struggle, in her difficulties, she's saying, she's saying that God is orchestrating these events in my life. Right? God is the one who's doing all these things to me, and I hate it. I hate what you're doing, God. And I think for me, when I look at this passage, this is so encouraging because when we look at the book of Ruth, when we look at even the different psalms of laments, God is giving us an example of how to interact with him. Right? God is inviting us to be honest with him. He's giving us an example to um, communicate with him when things are going terrible in your life. And the encouragement that I want to give to all of us is this. You know, be true to yourself. Um, speak honestly to God about your bitterness. If there's pain, if there's grief, if there's loss, bring that up to the Lord. Because the worst thing that you can do when you're hurting, is to be silent to God. Silence leads to distance. And the more silent you are in your relationship with God, the further you will drift away. I feel like, you know, in our Christian culture here, um, I feel like there's this misconception that Christians can never be angry. Um, But I think that's false. And I think this shows us, you know, it's okay to be angry. I mean, if you look at Naomi's life, she was definitely angry. And it's totally okay to express your anger towards God. Because within Naomi's anger, we see a mustard seed faith. But the thing is this. um, Don't let anger be a license for discipline. This is where anger goes bad. Because anger can lead us to be disobedient. So what we have to watch out for is in our anger, as we express our anger... Don't let it lead you to disobedience. Be angry, but remain in God. Right? I mean, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry, but still have faith. Church, this book is a reminder that one of the most powerful experiences of the gospel comes to us in our weakness. Right? One of the most powerful experiences of the gospel comes to us when you know, we're broken when we're empty, when we have nothing. Now, although our lives may be a little different from Naomi's, we know what it's like to have things stripped away from us. We know what it's like to suffer. We know what it's like being dealt unfair cards. For me, you know, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to lose a loved one. I know what it's like to lose an awesome job that you loved and you were able to thrive in. I know what it's like to be betrayed, right? I've been through my own share of pain. And even my therapist told me, you're no stranger to grief. But here's what I noticed. 
in my greatest moments of confusion, in my greatest moments of failure and desperation, in my greatest moments of pain and suffering, when it looked like all hope was lost, I was able to see Jesus more clearly. This book teaches us a very important lesson, church. When you go from full to empty, when everything is gone, when everything is stripped away, Jesus will be there. When you lose everything and anything, when you lose your wealth, when you lose your relationships, your looks, your reputation, your success, when you feel like a complete failure, when you have nothing left of value, when people leave you, when you have nothing and no one to cling to, when everything is gone, Jesus is saying, I'm there. I haven't left. God is always with you as he was always with Naomi. From the brightest day to the darkest night, God is always working. And we're not going to be able to see that immediately. Right? It's going to be hard for us to see the evidences of grace because our attention may be focused on the things that are going wrong in life. But God sometimes works in the most subtlest and quiet ways. And all we need is faith as small as a mustard seed like Naomi's to endure and to press on. So church, let that be an encouragement for us. To remember and to even fight for that discipline to see how God is providing in our lives, as dark as it is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you for the testimony of Naomi and the testimony that we'll see in Ruth. And truly, when everything goes south, um, God, when it feels like um, you're stripping everything away from us, uh, when it feels like, God, you are inflicting pain to us, um, God, our prayer as a church is that we would still have a, a mustard seed-like faith. God, that we will be able to have the eyes to see the many ways in how you're caring for us and how you're providing for us and to see the new opportunities that you're giving to us, to even have the eyes to see the community that you've provided us with, the people that care for us. God, I pray that you would help us um, in our frustrations, in our confusion, um, to even be honest with you in our anger and our bitterness. But God, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to be angry and to not sin. And God, most of all, our prayer is that you would remind us that you are always present with us, that Jesus, you are there in every circumstance and every season in life. And we want to be a people of faith that believe in that. Thank you for your word. Continue to lead and guide us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.